So we feel very much at home. I want to say one thing, um, well, two things about Nathaniel before I pray. And Susie, we love them. It's wonderful to think uh, back what God has done and uh, what he's doing in and through them here. So we've been keeping up to speed on what's going on at Trinity through our intersections at various uh, denominational events. And we're just very glad that you've received them so well and very thankful for the place that they have here with you. And uh, as his former pastor, uh, the fact that his family, Susie and Nathaniel and the kids, are safe and loved here just means a tremendous amount to my wife, Sandy, and I. Second thing I want to say is Nathaniel looks exactly the same as he did 14 years ago, (laughs) which is a bit unfair, (laughs) but uh, that's the way that goes. Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I ask your mercy and I pray you would listen um, to us as we plead with you to speak by your word and then give us ears to hear that we might be instructed on what you have for us and how we might live with you and what we might expect from you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this passage is really uh, remarkable at a number of levels. You'll notice that I started um, a little bit before the actual events of the storm in that passage, and there's a reason for that, because if you look at what happens just before the passage that's most famous, it's, it's ending a section, and with the end of that section of the teaching of the parables, we can start to see the outline of the um, apostles' perhaps expectations about what it was going to be like to be with Jesus. And so what I would imagine, at least of myself, if I were among them, uh, I would think that I was pretty much set for life right about now. That I was with someone very important who had a special relationship with me, was giving me secret instruction, and was asking me to be by his side. And the the reason that I I think that way is because that's sort of what I assume about Christianity to begin with. Now, now once, once I'm with Christ and understand him and know what God's doing in the world, well... I should be okay. But um, in short order, they're not going to feel okay. And they're not going to feel like Christ is with them. They're going to be uh, afraid and disappointed in their Savior. And maybe that's where you are um, today or have been. It might likely be where you find yourself in the future. Um, Before we get to look at the structure of this passage, I want to tell a story about a friend of mine's father who in the 80s, um, surprisingly, sold his business at about 55. And um, I asked him why. And he said, well, someone offered me a lot of money, and I found out that I could be financially secure, and all my children could be financially secure for all of our lives. So I took it. And I said, well, that's a really good reason to sell your company. And I want to return to him, um, because the man actually had a profound influence on my life in a lot of ways. But I, I want us to have that understanding in financial terms of, of what we might assume is the case when we're this close to Christ, that we're going to be okay all the time. So let's take a look at where those, where those assumptions might have come from for um, these uh, apostles, for these men. And we can see it in three areas of confidence. The disciples' first confidence um, is the confidence of private instruction, what we might call secret knowledge. Listen to this in verse 34. He did not speak to them without a parable, meaning all the crowds, right? But, but privately to his own disciples, 
He explained everything. Now, what's just happened is Jesus has just told some of his most famous parables to a large, large crowd. And um, we study these parables. They're part of our, they're part of the culture and language of of Christianity for thousands of years. But what happens is after he teaches everybody in these general terms, and this is recorded in the other Gospels too, he looks down at his his disciples, the 12 and some others, and he gives them special instruction. And they understand something profound. And it's really foundational to what it means to be a follower of Christ. They understand that they have some kind of deeper, more complete understanding of what it means to listen to the words and follow the teaching of Christ. That the whole world might know something of his parables, but his people understand their significance because they've been taught Um, what we find in Matthew chapter 16. Remember what he says to Peter, it's not flesh and blood that's taught this to you, right? But my Father in his heaven has made it known. You know, in John chapter 17, Jesus um, prays and he says, um, that the mark of his disciples is that they received his word. And so you can start to see uh, at the very beginning, the entryway into this safe place to live with Christ is that we understand the significance and the import of uh, his instruction. In fact, at the very core of the Great Commission for these thousands of years is to teach them, who knows the rest, everything I have what? Commanded them. So that's the first mark of a disciple. You know, as a matter of fact, there's a few of us in this room who have an awesome degree with an awesome name called a Masters of Divinity. So basically, the three of us who have that and someone else might have, we have mastered divinity. So we are forces to be reckoned with, right? Um, You know, it's really an odd name, but it reveals something. I know it's a it's a a mashup of an academic concept and an and a, and a, and a intellectual discipline. But it reveals what we sort of assume about the more we know about God and the more we understand about him, there's, an, there's a quiet, secret implication in our hearts that, that we're on the end. And we, if we don't have control of him, we at least understand that we're in such a special relationship that we might just be fine. But that's not the only kind of confidence that they have. Um, they don't have this uh, simply this general theological um, uh, understanding. They're also going to get very specific direction from Christ. Listen to what he says in the next verse. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let's go across to the other side. Now, here's a group, a band, really. The faithful are going to do what they're told. Now, this would be the next step in my life story. The next assumption I would make is that after understanding the message and the work and the person of God, um, discerning um, in some specific way his will for me to enter um, into a ministry or to step to the to the left or to the right or to speak or not to speak at his direction as best I can discern it, that draws me even more deeply into this um, secure place with this great savior of mine, for I'm actually working and entering into his will. And how much more clear could it get than Jesus looking right at you and saying, hey, get in the boat with me, we're going to go. That's about as simple as it gets. And so that's exactly what they do. Jesus says, come and follow me. And we know, and in fact it's true, that there is no place more safe than being with Christ doing his work at his side or he at our side. That's, of course, true, ultimately. 
But it's the assumptions that we make about what that safety means that might discourage or challenge us. So their second confidence is they have this specific guidance. Their, their third confidence is that they have a special kind of intimacy with Jesus. And you can see that in this passage in um, the last, again, the last part of chapter 4. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And you can start to see what becomes a common pattern throughout the Gospel of Mark. And actually in all the Gospels, there is the crowd. And then who else is there? Then there's the disciples. There's a very clear distinction between hangers-on and the curious and those who actually enter into a discipling relationship with Christ. They are literally on the inn, in this case, on the inside of the boat. But they're with him. And they've been distinguished from the rest. Now, what that starts to tell us, it's sort of human nature, it's the psychology of the fallen um, mind and heart. We have special understanding, we have special guidance, we have special relationship, and special plus special plus special means we're special. And we, we will be safe. Our children will be safe, our job will be safe, our health will be safe, our dreams will be safe. Because we're doing what he says. We're set as it was, as it were. We're set for life. I told you about this friend of mine. His, uh, his father, about seven or eight years later, we were adults then, maybe, maybe could have been as many as ten, his father called him up and said, hey, uh, I'd like to go to work for you. And my buddy said, uh, I want to go to work for me. Are you bored? No, I'm not bored. Well, what's up, Dad? Why do you need to go to work? He said, I just made uh, my last house payment. I sold the Jaguar, and I'm out of money. In seven or eight or ten years, he had nothing left. It's really hard to be set for life. And in fact, sometimes the most dangerous thing in your life could be that you're set for life. So I want to take a look now at what this lesson really teaches us. That Jesus actually leads them into the storm to teach them what it really means to be with him. What it really means to trust him. That's the lesson of this passage. Jesus leads them into the storm to teach them what it really means to be with him. And perhaps just as importantly, what it doesn't mean. To be with him. And you can start to see trouble. You know, the first clouds of the storm actually start right early in the text in this really odd phrase that is easy to run past. And they took them, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. Now, the problem with that is that they didn't take him anywhere. Who asked them to go? Jesus took them. They subtly inverted the relationship. Like, right on, Jesus, we'll take you. We'll take our living charm with us. And we'll go across the water. And you'll take care of us. It's odd, too. Um, Just as he was. That's a very enigmatic. What does that mean? Do you say that? You know, the pastor said, come over. So we took him over to his house just as he was. You wouldn't speak that way. Well, it's just as they thought he was. The, the, it's a shadow of the fact that they didn't really understand who he was. 
And they didn't understand the nature of the relationship that he was taking them. They weren't taking him anywhere. That he was someone greater than they imagined. And they would soon find out. So let's take a look at at what happens in the storm. We'll see that they're overwhelmed by their circumstances and they're underwhelmed by their Savior. So what happened soon is this great windstorm broke open and breaking waves into the boat. So the boat was already filling up. But Jesus was doing something impossible in the stern. He was asleep on a cushion. Now, think about the, the reality of what's going on here. These are men who made their living in a boat. These are men who are not going to be intimidated by a, by a small squall. You know, they know how to handle uh, strong winds. They understand how to navigate and manage and stabilize and steer a boat. This storm, which actually we're told is a great storm or a megastorm, and that word's going to be important in the passage as we move along, this great storm freaked out mariners. And you can imagine what they did. They, they looked at the storm. They saw it coming. They probably weren't too worried. Not only did they have Jesus, but this was an area of competence for them. They knew how to handle this boat. They knew how to handle the Sea of Galilee. They knew how to handle a storm. And after doing uh, all the things that seamen would do in a situation like that, they finally came to the point which most of us come to in our trials. After we run out of our own resources, we realize we're in deep trouble. We've used our money. We've used our smarts. We've used our relationships. We've used technology. And we still find ourselves swamped. Especially in the Bible. Whenever you're... um, Reading in the Bible about trouble in water, it's not a good thing. Because ever since the flood, the image of water in scriptures is an image of impending judgment. It's not a good thing. There's a lot of bad things happen in the water and in the sea in the Bible. And it's a profound image of the judgment of God. And what's happening is these men, the whole world, the center of their world, the area where they're most competent has now become too big for them. And we can rightly assume that the one who would soon calm the storm knew the storm was coming and led them right into it. But that's not the only challenge that he provides for them. They're overwhelmed by their storm, whether it's loneliness or cancer or loss of job or anxiety or divorce or whatever those storms are. But they're also underwhelmed by a Savior who is completely disconnected from the reality of the crisis that they're facing. He is so profoundly disconnected that he seems absolutely unaware of the danger that they're all in. He's doing something that's impossible, dangering, careless, and angering. He's ignoring the acute, overwhelming, near-death experience of his own people. And I would imagine that many, most... Maybe even everyone in this room understands exactly what it's like to pray to Christ in your crisis while you are sure that he must be sleeping in a stern somewhere, unconcerned about what is overwhelming you. The sleeping Christ is a careless, failing, confusing Savior. And it's an ancient, if I might say, problem with God. Listen to Psalm 10. O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? 
Well, the hidden God, the sleeping God, the unresponsive God is really now become the most challenging part of the storm, isn't it? They followed him. They followed him into this boat on this day after being revealed that they have a special kind of relationship with him. For what good? For what purpose? You know, there are thousands of boats on thousands of seas around the globe that are doing just fine. But this one with the Son of God in it is about to be swamped. It just makes no sense. You know, Sandy and I went to um, Seattle in 1995, and we were looking for a new call after planting a church in Indiana. And, and we chose these words from Psalm 121 as the anchor as we looked for what God would have for us. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. That's going to be important because while we were in Seattle, considering coming to the church that we went to, on the very first full day we were there, I was leaving the church and I turned around to have a conversation, I think about a car we were using or something, and and I stepped back on a broken sidewalk and just destroyed my ankle. And I uh, made a big scene, and, you know, uh, I didn't scream because I'm too manly. I did pass out for a brief moment. But the, um, <laughs> and so there I was a moment later in the basement, you know, having caused a little bit of a scene with my ankle, you know, it was fine. It was just a, a, a sprain. But uh, ankle's ballooning up like a grapefruit. And I'm looking at Sandy, and I'm thinking to myself, hey, does this mean we're not supposed to come here? Because we got that whole verse about the foot thing. And we had this kind of thing covered. Well, I'm a little dense. We've been there 18 and a half years. So if that was, God's going to have to do a lot more to my foot to really get through into my head. But it did challenge the assumption that we had that if we did it right, if we stayed close, if we understood, we would be fine. And, you know, that was the, that was the very um, first and the least amount of pain that that ministry has caused me in 18 and a half years. And I'm sure I've caused pain there as well. But now we have these three miracles. You only really see one miracle, but I want to talk about three miracles. And then I want to take some lessons from this passage. Because there really are three miracles. Um, The centerpiece miracle is the one that gets all the press. And so um, we know the miracle of calming the storm. I'll, I'll talk about that in a moment. But the first miracle we've already spoken of, uh, and that is the miracle of the sleeping Savior. We need to understand that, um, that it is essentially, in a storm of this magnitude, impossible to sleep unless you're drugged. And this is a ship that's becoming swamped, that's probably in pretty high seas. You know, the Sea of Galilee is 696 feet below sea level. So what happens is these gale force winds come rushing down onto the water sometimes and create these really massive, massive storms. And Jesus, um, who uh, of course had a body like ours and was a, a, a human just like we are, Jesus, um, without the power of God making a specific point would not be sleeping in the stern of a boat that's filling up with water. And so what we need to understand is that this profound message about the storm begins with the sleep. 
that Jesus, remember, is teaching his disciples what it means to really be with him, to really live for him. And the first thing that they must learn is that if he's not responding, it's still part of the work of God. His silence is still his speaking. His stillness is still his strength. Everything that happens to us is about conditioning and training us to live a life that's really lived for and with God. And this profound miracle of the sleeping Savior doing this psychologically and physically impossible thing is a message to the disciples that Christ will be in control even when he appears not to be. That his, his no answer is an answer to your prayers. And most profoundly, we learn something that, that will bring us comfort if we meditate on it, that Jesus does not believe in all of our fears. Jesus does not believe everything you are afraid of is actually scary. The things that horrify you the most about our children or our retirement or our job or whatever it is, those things, what if Jesus didn't really feel very scared about that stuff? What if his perspective saw the beginning from the end in light or dark as it was light? And what if he just wasn't freaked out about the stuff that kept you up last night? Wouldn't that be great? That would be great. But I could only enjoy that if I could get over the fact that he was sleeping when I needed him. If I only understood that, that his non-answer is his answer and his stillness is his strength and his silence is his speaking. If I understand that, that the miracle of God's non-responsiveness, a God who loves us so much, is itself part of his care for us. That's the first miracle. The second miracle um, is the big one. The second miracle is that, that he calms the storm with a word, with a rebuke. He orders peace. He commands this great quietness, another greatness, another, a great still on the water. An odd, the implication is clear that there's a special kind of silence and stillness to the water, a completeness. Once Christ does answer, he answers profoundly. I don't want to spend a lot of time on that miracle. There's, there's much to be said about it, but I, I don't actually think it's the, it's the main point of the passage. Of course, the Son of God has been displayed as capable of changing the order of the created universe at his will. And, and we praise him and worship him for that. But, but that is actually meant to get their attention for something else. I'll put it this way. Our, we have uh, three children. We became empty nesters in six months in the last like from July this year to January, boom. After 20 million years as parents, we're, we like don't know what to do with ourselves. But um, when we did have uh, our sons at home especially, uh, they would have earphones in, right? And um, they would attempt to have conversations with us with their earphones in. And uh, we would not accept that. But, but also... When, once we would look at them and we would start talking and they would look up and we, I would be like, earbuds, man, get them out. They would literally do this. So now there's two of them, right? They would take one out and then they would give me, graciously give their father who feeds them and gives them life, 
and, and tames the universe around them when they're children so they don't die, they would generously give me one half of their attention, <laughs> for which I, I was sure I was supposed to be thankful. <laughs> and, of course, we would tell them to take out both the earbuds, and they would roll their eyes and think about how demanding and how unfair it was and how tough their life was. Well, what Jesus has just done is he's done what I believe he wanted to do all along, which is he got the earbuds out, and he got their attention, and now they had to rethink everything. Fundamentally, they had to rethink who he was, who this was that they brought into the boat with them just as he was. Well, just as he was turns out to be a whole lot more than they thought he was. They had to rethink now that they could hear and see all the assumptions that they had made about his sleep. And we'll talk about their gentle approach to the Savior in a minute. For the third miracle is that they become afraid of Christ. They had a great fear the third time the, the language is used. They became afraid of Christ. Now, we think maybe we shouldn't be afraid of Christ. You know, Christ is uh, gentle, meek, tender, loving, patient, kind. True. But he's also the ferocious son of God who can speak the sea into still silence in a moment. And if you understand him, You will be afraid of him. And actually being afraid of Christ will make all the other things you want to be afraid of seem not so intimidating anymore. The greater Christ is, the smaller cancer is, the smaller loneliness is, the smaller losing your job is. It's not as if these things aren't important and don't don't bring us fear. Christ is compassionate. His Father knows that we're made of dust. He remembers how we are. But He also knows that His Son is greater. His Son is bigger. The transference of fear from the storm to the Savior is the third miracle. And it's a profound transition from the assumptions that they made when they decided so generously to take the Son of God with them wherever they were going. This transference... Transference of fear is the final miracle. And really, that's what it means to follow Christ. Look, I I assure you that when I face a challenge, I will be afraid of my challenge. You know, we all have things that are um, overwhelming us or threatening too soon. And my message to you isn't that Jesus doesn't understand that. My message to you is that Jesus may not be afraid of it. And he would have you know that he is bigger than anything that's around you. Trust him in his silence. There's some lessons here about fear, and we'll close off with uh, these applications. Um, And the first is that, that faith wakes Christ up. Even when it's not very good faith, listen to what Remember that these, these uh, sailors would have undoubtedly done what sailors do when a storm comes up. I don't know. There's Navy personnel here. You know what you guys and gals do. I don't. But whatever that stuff is that you do, that's what they did. 
Am I getting too technical for the non-Navy people here? (laughs) Whatever you do, they did that. And then it became too great for them. And then they saw that Jesus didn't care, and then they called him out. This faith, this faith still wakes up Christ. The storm doesn't wake up Christ. Prayer wakes up Christ, even pretty pathetic prayer. Like, you don't even care about us. You don't care. You're not paying attention. That stirs him. So he will wake up. You cry out. You keep crying out when it doesn't seem like he will. Maybe cry out with those prayers in the Psalms that you wonder why they're in the Psalms because they seem so awkward with God. Faith wakes Christ and faith fears rightly. Won't spend a lot of time on that because that's really the point of the passage, which I just, which I, I just mentioned, that, that faith sees Christ as increasingly uncontrollable, but in control. That, that faith sees you on a journey with Christ, not Christ on a journey with you. That faith understands that although you take him just as he is, you really don't understand the profound capacity and measure of who he is in all of his glory. And faith fears rightly. Faith fears Christ. More than dreams, more than workmates, more than friends or sickness or divorce or childlessness. Faith makes Christ bigger. Although faith faith trusts also in the goodness of God before it trusts in the power of God. So the, the lesson should be that if you are with the Son of God, if he's was rich and became poor, if he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, if he took on the form of a servant, if he came all this way, if he died for you, you have been shown unequivocally that God is good. And that's enough. Trust the goodness of God before you trust the power of God. If you only trust the power of God, you will only find comfort when you see him exercising that power. If you trust the goodness of God, you can find comfort when it appears to you that he's asleep. Trust the goodness of God, not simply the power of God. Two more. Faith sees storms from the stern, and by the stern, I mean the cross. Let me explain that to you. Christ is asleep in the stern, and we would ask ourselves, why wasn't he afraid? Faith sees life through the lens of the story of redemption. We know, we do know why Jesus wasn't afraid of the storm. It may not seem apparent to you at first, but as soon as I tell you why, you'll say, oh, I get it. The reason Jesus wasn't afraid of the storm is because Jesus knew he wasn't going to die in a storm. Jesus knew he was going to die at the cross. Jesus understood that the whole course of his life, no matter what trials, 
no matter what storms, no matter what challenges or what opposition or what uncertainty, everything about his life was pointed to his death and resurrection and glorification. And so Jesus could sleep in the stern of a boat in a storm because he knew the direction of his life. Now, let me tell you this. If you're in Christ, as we saw today in Romans chapter 6, if you died with Christ, what do you know? You'll be raised with him. We see our lives too much in, in the narrative of our own telling. In the story that we start to set up when we become young, maybe in our 20s, we build and we make decisions and we know it's going to be like this and the marriage will be like that and the work will be like this and the children will be like that and it will all be perfect. We tell a story. And when that story becomes challenged, we become afraid. But you know that passage that sadly sometimes uh, we get offended when people quote it to us? All things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. That's your narrative. You have been swept up in the vortex of the death and resurrection of Christ. And whatever storm you are in, whatever challenges you face, whatever fears are around you, nothing will take you off that course in Christ. See the storm from the stern, and by that I mean the cross. Think about everything that happens to you, not in the story you're telling, not that you brought God with you in your boat, but that God puts you in his boat. And remember, finally, this last lesson. It's been my experience that Christ calms more hearts than storms. That, that his purpose with these disciples who will face greater challenges in the future is to teach them faith and shalom that transcends circumstances. Remember what Paul said? A peace that passes what? A peace that passes understanding. Jesus wants them to learn in this little lesson that would seem small to them by the end of it all, by the end of their life, in their martyrdom, and in the challenges that we find in the book of Acts, and later on at the, at the Passion Week, this would seem small to them. But they had been taught that Christ would calm their heart. And that's what he wants, because here's the situation. He may or may not calm the storm you're in today or ever, but it will not distract from the course. I want to tell you another story about a guy who is set for life. His name is Jesse. He's a dear friend of ours in, in Seattle. We got called one afternoon um, over to the hospital because he had been feeling a little sick, not terribly sick, but a little sick. One of those, you feel a little sick and you go to the doctor and it turns out that you're terribly sick. And he found out that he had leukemia. And he called us over there and I said, I said uh, you know, we ministered to them and prayed with them. And, and, and soon something appeared in him that I was immediately suspect of as a pastor. He had complete peace. You know, so as a pastor, I'm thinking to myself, he's not grasping the magnitude of this. This is obviously superficial. I mean, really, my job is to help stir this up a little bit so that he can come to terms with what's really happening because this kind of pseudo-faith will never work. 
I said, well, how are you going to handle work? He said, well, um, I hadn't told you this yet, but I, I just decided last week that we were going to have to close our business. I'm like, okay. Found out later on that um, Jeff didn't have any insurance and needed to take $5,000 worth of medicine a month to stay alive. That was five years ago. He's doing well now in terms of health. It's, it's under control. And I'm telling you, I've been up close with that guy. He's never blinked. His shalom has never left him for a moment. He's got four, five children, actually. They have made it through the love of the church and the love of God's people and on a shoestring and moved a couple times. And the guy is annoyingly peaceful. You really kind of don't want to be around him. Because it starts to challenge you and your little, your little rain that you're dealing with. Let me just find this lesson out. Five years, this is the real thing. God calmed his heart. Not a storm. And that's what it really means to follow Jesus. Let me pray.